Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. So we've we've had a few weeks between uh, podcasts. It's been three weeks or so since the last one. And uh, the feedback that I've been getting from the listenership is that there have been more than people actually have time to listen to. So I'm trying to space them out. It'll be about one or two a month going forward. Um, so that's the uh, that's one piece of news. And then the other piece of news is that we have uh, people who are actually starting to be regulars on this show, which uh, which is exciting. And one of those is here to talk talk to us today. I'm delighted to welcome back Mark McNamee, who uh, works at the Frontier Strategy Group, uh, although all opinions he expresses here today will be his own, of course. Uh, Mark, welcome to the podcast again. Yes, thanks a lot, Joe. Glad to be speaking with you again. So you just got back from uh, you, you've been on tour uh, and uh, how's how's uh, how's Russia at this time of year? Yeah, thanks. You make it sound like I'm in a rock band or something. Um, I was in Moscow, yeah, for about a week. Uh, just came back uh, a little under two weeks ago, um, and it was uh, it was an incredibly insightful trip. Uh, very interesting. So, uh, in short, um, we went there, Mike, uh, for work to speak with multinationals and understand their sentiments, you know, on the ground there, how they are doing 2016, how they're looking at the next three to five years. Um, and, and all of the clients that we have are all household names, fairly large firms in consumer goods and industrials and technology, et cetera. Um, and so we got incredible, just gained incredible insights on not just on their business operations, but really what's going on in the country. So, you know, what's going on with consumer demand, what what the government's doing, geopolitics, how oil price is affecting things, uh, ruble depreciation, and, and their outlook on all these things for the next, you know, several years. And uh, um, to start with, I mean, just looking from the business uh, perspective, it's, uh, they're all just more or less reacting. I mean, the, the conditions have just changed so drastically from when, you know, you compare it to 5, 10, 15 years ago, when, you know, Russia at different times is growing by 7, 8, 9%, and now, you know, they declined last year by uh, close to 4%. This year will decline, uh, in our estimation at least, by about 2%. Um, so, it, you know, it's radically different times. And so they're just, they're just trying to get their bearings about them and trying to make, you know, the two, three, four-year plan, the strategic plan is tough. They're struggling just to figure out what 2016 is going to be like. You know. Yeah, it, it really one when one talks about this region, one can't underestimate the importance of oil prices, and and the oil prices are are kind of. I mean, we've talked about this earlier on this on this podcast, but the factors that are making oil prices fluctuate are really in many cases beyond this region's control. It's all about China's slowdown and Saudi Arabia's rivalry with with Iran and with U.S. Uh, shale producers and the U.S. and the shale boom. Um, fracking, all of these factors that have caused oil prices to go from uh, you know upwards of a hundred dollars a barrel just a, a few years ago to what like twenty la- something last month, and and I think we're at thirty five to thirty eight dollars uh, as of the recording of this podcast. Given how dependent Russia's economy and by extension, we'll get to this, the region is on on oil prices for for economic growth. I, I, I imagine it is really, really difficult to plan. I mean, like you say, never mind a, a four-year plan. What's going to happen next month? Because last month they were predicting oil prices would be different than they actually are right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, then that's that's the thing. We had, we had a plan, uh, or we had a forecast for Russia late last year. And this is when we were expecting, uh, and us just like everyone else, I mean, our main competition, the governments, Gazprom, I mean, all, all of these 
you know, organizations that are estimating the, the oil price. And we were expecting about $50 a barrel for this year. And then we saw the huge dip in December, January, and then everything went out the window. So, you know, all these all these countries made these budgets based upon $50 a barrel of oil. And they thought they were being responsible and conservative. And then it took a further downturn, right? That, that most, I mean, nobody really saw coming, to be, to be frank. Um, and so this has, yeah, an overwhelming impact on countries, specifically Russia, of course. I mean, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, these major energy exporters, they, you know, they rely on, you know, for their government budget, it's two-thirds, 75%. For GDP, it can be 40% or 50%, you know, energy uh, exports. Um, so just monstrous. Russia's in a little bit of a better position, but still, they're a little bit better diversified, but they're still, you know, very reliant on energy uh, exports. So it, it, it's extremely tough. Um, and now the outlook is that, you know, we're, most people are thinking about $50 a barrel, uh, uh, of oil for 2016 uh, and now it looks like it won't get to that until probably 2018 so if you look at that alone then you i mean you're just drastically changing your your expectations um for these for these markets and i mean and this is a this is a global phenomenon you're exactly right this is oil prices coming down like this china changing its trajectory um the eurozone growth not taking off by any means um very slow growth again this year i mean these these huge global factors i mean this this is yeah um, it's kind of bringing down sentiment in emerging markets, uh, really pretty much everywhere. And, th- and that's sort of the point. That's what we tell our clients all the time. And, you know, everybody's worried, you know, particularly in the U S you know, what's going on with the world, how come global growth is slowing down, how come, you know, there's instability rising and, and there's all these foreign policy issues, which seem outside of the control of the U S terrorism and et cetera. And I, I mean, really the message we keep telling our clients, which they're slowly sort of getting onto is that. This is, yes, a new normal, completely, 100% a new normal. But the whole point is that the last 10 to 15 years where you have this, this astounding growth, you know, the development of the BRICS growing by 6 7 8% and all this, that was the anomaly. You know, they were, we, it happened, you know, over the course of a decade plus. So it seemed like the norm and this is just going to be occurring everywhere. And China was the big grower before. So now it's, what other markets going to grow like China? What's the new China? Well, that was kind of insane to be thinking. I was just so overly optimistic. So the reality is that that 10, 15 year period was the anomaly. And now we're returning to sort of how the world works, I guess. You know, this is reality. This is, is, this this, is the new normal. Yeah. Is this the end of the BRICS? I mean, it was always sort of kind of an artificial construct. For those who don't know, it's it's, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa got got added in a little bit later. So it was really just BRIC and then and then <laughs> the, the, the S got capitalized when South Africa got added in. But these countries have fairly little to do with each other, although it's worth noting that that Russia and, and Brazil's economies have tanked more or less in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah. is this, I mean, are, are we just going to stop... Referring, it's kind of like how how the G seven and is has kind of given over a little bit to the you know it was the G eight then it became the G seven and does it still matter when the G twenty matters a bit more or or vice you know that kind of thing is, is it is this a convention whose time to die has come? Um, I wouldn't go that far because that's that's looking at this only through the lens of growth and not in terms of absolute GDP. So if you think about where these countries were in the year two thousand, right? I, I mean. Um, I mean, the best analogy is, in, I think it was 1995, China didn't import any oil, right? So, yes, in terms of growth, yes, these countries aren't doing what they used to be doing. And in particular, Russia, I mean, 
it's laughable to talk, be talking about Russia, Brazil, and South Africa in the same sentence, you know, much less the same uh, acronym as, as uh, China and India. But uh, in absolute terms, I mean, you got to think the, the you know per capita GDP went up so much for these countries. The middle classes rose dramatically. Um, so there's still a lot of spending power in these countries. It's just they're not growing anymore. It's six, seven, eight percent, and and a lot of that, specifically Brazil, Russia, South Africa, to a large extent, is, was the reliance on the commodities. You know, Brazil and Russia, more energy commodities, obviously more mineral commodities. When you, when you talk about uh, uh, South Africa, so so it, that's more of the perception um, issue that that we should be seeing. So yeah, are the BRICS uh, dead? No, um, the growth. If you want to look through that lens, then. This is yeah. This is pretty. This is pretty much dead for the next you know five years. We'll say until something unforeseen occurs. But uh, but I mean you gotta you gotta look from just the absolute terms. You know, larger middle classes, a lot of spending power. Um, re- regionally, these governments still hold you know a whole hell of a lot of clout. So yeah, and, and so they, they had the, they had this sort of weird political alignment for a while where they were all kind of lined up, not <laughs> not in direct opposition necessarily, but but kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all in their own way thorns in the sides of the United States, France, yeah. and and the UK at the United Nations. And so, of course, it was very different because Russia and China could veto anything, and and all that South Africa could do was rally the the G seventy seven, the group of seventy seven, or the, the developed developing nations. Um, uh-huh. To, and India, likewise, to oppose some UN reform that the the United States was trying to push through, or, or some resolution on Syria or or, or Myanmar or, or, or Zimbabwe that the U.S. was trying to push through. Um, the, but but they were kind of they were kind of allies of convenience, and so I'm not I, I'm in I'm, I'm interested to see if that continues going forward, or if we sort of stop think we we, we think of them as countries that have certain aspects in common, but aren't necessarily a political block that are going to vote together, uh, you know, in, in international fora that are going to act in concert with each other. Right. Yeah. And I wouldn't go. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you talk about it that way, it almost sounds like a sort of, you know, a modern world Warsaw pact or something. And they're nowhere, nowhere near that. Um, I mean, really they're, they're aligned only insofar as they share the interest in, sort of maintaining their sovereignty and resisting, you know, all the calls from the, this Western program, right, uh, of political and economic liberalization. And now that they've developed a little more clout because of their economic growth, they can push back. And then they have some friends who likewise sit in a similar boat and don't want to be pressured by the Western world. And again, they've gotten a little bit richer, so they have a little bit more to, you know, push back. So so they've aligned, right? I mean, there isn't that much more depth to it than what I just said. I'm being intentionally brief here, of course, but um, there isn't that much more to it. But going forward, it also shouldn't change that much radically. Um, they have legitimately developed a decent amount of clout. And yes, they're not growing at the, at the pace that they used to be, but it's not like the United States is growing at 4% or taking off. Um, and also just in terms of internationalism and, 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 and the appetite domestically in the U.S. for um, engaging in, you know, foreign ventures in any way or, or pressuring other countries or being the global policeman. Um, you know, some of those things were, those ideas were more appealing in the nineties. And, um, but I mean, I think clearly the experience of Iraq and now ISIS in Syria and, you know, continued instability in Afghanistan. I mean, we could go through a raft of us foreign policy uh, issues over the last decade that kind of, um, 
sort of limits the amount of push you're getting from uh, from this Western program. And particularly, that's just from the perspective of the United States. Uh, you don't see Germany or France or, uh, or the UK pushing around uh, too much globally either, considering all their domestic problems right now either. So, Speaking of foreign adventurism, uh, I'm interested also in how... It, you know, a lot of times you'll see this narrative that oil prices have tanked, Russia's economy has suffered, and so they won't be able to engage in the kind of foreign adventurism that we've seen in in uh, Ukraine and in Syria. I I I some I somewhat question this logic just because the I mean. It, people, I don't know. It, it reminds me of uh, a line that somebody once said in the middle of the Iraq War when we were spending a billion dollars a day at the height of the thing, almost. <laughs> right. Where it's like, it's like this may be a dumb idea, but we can actually afford it. You know, <laughs> in, in the grand scheme of the U.S. GDP, it's just, it's just not that much. And likewise, R- Russia can continue to engage in in Syria and and hold on to to Crimea even in the face of this like it just it just doesn't make that much of a difference those those actions in terms of the total russian gdp like the difference between you know a a, a, a small shift in the price of oil has way greater ramifications for russia than than does the amount that they're spending to keep crimea and in, in you know and or support rebels in, in right. eastern ukraine right precisely i i totally totally agree um the thing is, this these you know Crimea or Syria are paying pensions in the Donbass. Uh, these are just extras. It's not that much, but it's these don't have the they don't have the resources for these little extras. Now, I'm, I, that's speaking purely from a financial point of view. Now, I, I, clearly, and and you can look in the 2016 budget for Russia, they're absolutely willing to sacrifice their people's living standards, take the risk of sort of the political uh, reaction of the population against the current regime uh, for the sake of these foreign policy ventures. They have, uh, this year, the increase alone in defense spending is greater than all of the total absolute spending on healthcare in the country, for example. Now, I mean, if that happened in the United States, I mean, you'd have, I think, protests up and down, you know, up in every major city. Um, but a third of the budget is, is this year is devoted to defense spending. Now, to be fair, Obviously, not all that. It's not solely for Syria and Ukraine. A lot of one, a lot of it is for domestic security. So a lot, you know, law and order and uh, things internally. A lot of it is, is recurring uh, issues. You know, research and development, uh, maintaining bases and things like this. Um, the, the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Right, right. It depends on how you want to measure it, but right, yeah, it, it, comparable with by, the US, by numbers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so, and so, yeah, maintaining weapons and things like this. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, that's a monstrous thing. And this is, of course, occurring while oil prices have dropped and their, their government revenues are, ex- you know, extremely far down. Um, but it shows you where the government's priorities are. And and the people, I mean, they, the government still has very strong popularity. Putin specifically, uh, I mean, that's a separate issue, his popularity, what, what's at the root of that, what's going on sort of psychologically and culturally. But, I mean, his, his approval ratings are, you know, above 80 percent they were close to 90 percent a couple of months ago um so it, you know they can sort of keep this up uh, well, this is one, yeah. this is one of these interesting things that that a, a, gov- a government can do can act in a way that seems contrary to the views of its own mm-hmm. citizens citizens uh or, or or the the interests of its own citizens mm-hmm. if it has a a nationalist narrative to run with and they have they have done this in spades 
the you know the the the, the whole idea of, of Russia intervening abroad. We I don't know like we we keep we, again. It's it's interesting. I, I I saw a program about media in in uh, in Syria. How different media have covered it internationally, and ever, everybody's just watching their own channel. Like the the Russian narrative, yeah. the Syrian government's narrative, and the Western narrative are all grossly disproportionate to each other and, and often to what's actually happening on the ground. And and I think that it's kind of the same here. We keep getting this narrative in, in mostly Western media outlets that people are going to turn on the Russian government because uh, Russia is engaging in Syria and that's not in, in the people's interest and Russians are dying and Russian dollars are being spent on these airstrikes and i'm not sure if that's actually going to happen i'm not sure it's actually not going to swing the other way that this nationalist we need to be Mm -hmm, strong uh is isn't going to bolster the popularity of the government right right and and this is this is the thing i mean this is a political culture difference it's hard for us to sort of grasp but yeah i mean it they can be spending this money they can be feeding these messages through sort of the state propaganda to the to the people and and this is just really just uh, pulling out of historic Russian political culture from the people. So it, it's natural that they are open to these types of narratives um, and, and willing to sort of go along with this. And so, so I, I completely agree. I mean, this it's not a necessity that you have to start pulling out of some of these foreign ventures just because, um, you know, the finances are down. You can make sacrifices elsewhere and people can go along with it and, and, and agree, generally speaking, with it. Um, the biggest thing is that they, I mean, Russian political culture, it's all based on fear, xenophobia, national security. And so all you have to do is feed them this message that these are necessary things. Why are we in Syria? The world's falling apart. The Western world has moved away. We need to be there because ISIS is an international threat, clearly. Just look around you, right? And we've had enough tax domestically, too, from ISIS-related groups from North Chechnya, right, um, which have linkages to ISIS and uh, Al Qaeda and AFPAC region, all that, uh, yeah, so, and, and, know, and the Russian so, and the Russian plane that 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 ISIS right, took down yeah, that was leaving, leaving Sharm El Sheikh. Like that, right. I feel like that didn't get enough coverage. In in what I mean, if that had been a plane that was going to any <laughs> Western capital, we would have yeah. we would have completely lost it over here. Like, oh, I mean, look at look at Paris. Far fewer exactly. Far, far fewer people died in Paris, and that told that completely trumped the that that the plane going down. Um, yeah, absolutely, and 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 this, by the way, exactly what you said. That was all over Russian media for weeks about precisely that the the disparity of you know the coverage for this. Why in Paris are they, you know, is this an everyday major, major, major issue? When what was what was the world doing? You know, when far more people died in, in the plane going down. But that's exactly that's another wonderful example of just feeding into this narrative. And so, so the people buy it. It seems legitimate. Um, you have to be doing this. And and I mean, the other thing is that the people, what are I mean, they're rational people. What are they going to do? So even I mean, you can I, I mean, I've spoken. I I'm married to a Russian. I've speaking spoken with endless Russians about this. Um, they they understand like what what can we do from the ground? Um, and uh, so uh, the instability, all these little flares growing up around the world for the last several years, you know, starting with the Arab Spring and go throughout the Middle East and then, you know, protests in Moldova, Romania, Ukraine falling apart. All, I mean, all of these things, and that's what Russia wants to do is just keep the instability going. Just keep everything, little flames somewhere all the time, just to keep on reminding the population of the fear out there, right? All these potential threats. 
And so, I mean, you talk to Russians, this is what they say all the time. It's like, yes, okay, Putin, okay, fine. He's a dictator, right. I can't say certain things on the street. Maybe I can't write an op-ed. Okay, right. Um, our elections are rigged, right, we get it. But what's on the other side? Do we want to look like Ukraine? Do we want to look like, who knows, with Syria? Should we have a should we have a Tahrir Square in Cairo and look what's happened to Egypt? Um, you know, they're even more authoritarian than us. Do we want to look like Libya at Yemen? Right. I mean, these people, they're, they're awake. They're, you know, they see what's going on. So you keep on sort of keep that fear minimally alive. And this, and then they say, you know, what? life's not so bad. <laughs> there's also a, a, a it's a, it's like a barrier to entry. It's, you can protest in Russia, but there's a much higher risk of something bad happening if you do. Uh, right. You know, it's not like North Korea where you you can't protest. You know, there's no political space at all. But the political right. space is much more closed, certainly than it used to be. And so, how how you know it. This is one of these things when they say that Putin has 80 or 90 percent popularity or, the, you know, the uh-huh. government has is popular to this extent. It's it's sort of difficult to know. It's probably not completely wrong, but it's also probably a bit exaggerated because we don't really know how freely people, you know, how the extent to which people feel free to speak right. their minds today. Yeah. And, and you can we can get to that all day. And, and people do. Um, they try to show that. But. Um, I would take the the polls at face value. They're done by a very legitimate organization, actually, Levada Center, um, that, that's report. I mean, they've been doing this for, for decades now. Um, so it, it, let me put this way: if they're off, it might be five percent one way or the other. Something like this. It, this isn't uh, this isn't like trying to get you know pulling data out of North Korea, where you might I mean it might just not be a reflection of reality anywhere near it, right? Um, Putin's popularity. I mean, you brought up a couple really interesting issues. So. Putin's popularity, first of all, um, you know, they say basically, do you approve of Vladimir Putin? And 86% predictably, whatever it comes, you know, 20 upon the month, yes, we do. I mean, what they really might as well be asking the people is, you know, do you love Russia? And of course, every Russian, you know, answers, yes, I love Russia. Okay, now the proxy is, do you approve of Vladimir Putin? I do. Uh, he's synonymous with the state. It's, he simply represents stability. He's the representation of the Russian state at large in the world. And particularly in this time of weakness, it's not a surprise that his popularity goes up because the Russians understand we need to unify. We need to be a solid block against the rest, the rest of the world because from Russian historic Russian political culture, they're constantly afraid of what is the rest of the world going to do? I mean, Russians, you know, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing greatly, but, you know, they think Moscow's the center of the world. They think Everybody wants to take Moscow, and why not? It's the world's largest landmass. It has every resource you could possibly imagine. A very skilled population, highly educated. Um, you know, they've won wars through extreme sacrifice, but they've shown their military ability. Um, so, you know, this this popular. I mean, just summing it up, this this popularity. It's more about that. You ask them more. You ask them different questions. Do you trust Putin or Medvedev or any of these other leaders? Do you trust the government? Do you like? Do you approve of the the direction the government is going in? And then you can see you get more nuanced answers, and then you can start to see, okay, actually the approval ratings for where the government's going and government decisions and things like this are far, far, far lower. And approval for the United Russia Party, um, technically not exactly Putin's party, but in all but name, um, are much lower than they are for. Vladimir Putin, you know, Tsar Putin, the leader, the father of the motherland, right? Um, so that's one issue. And that's an important point to bear in mind. And then the protests, and, and, and it's related. People aren't protesting 
primarily because they see it as disloyal to the state. They recognize we need to be together on this one. So if you're protesting, you're betraying, you know, your your ethnic group. You're you're betraying your country, right? You're betraying your family, right? And so it's it's that's the issue. What we're going to see for this year, um, and progressively more for the rest of the year for sure and into 2017 who knows we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how it develops are going to be specifically economic protests and we've seen some of these at a minor level already over the last several months um and they, i mean but these protests are they are immediately saying we're not anti-putin we're not going against the government we're just complaining because we haven't been paid in four months or six months um and this is where it, this would be the root of a protest movement uh, down the line, uh, not in the near future. I don't. I don't think anything major this year necessarily. Uh, if it does, it would, it would be several months away, closer to the September uh, Duma elections this year. Um, but that's the. It's the economic protest, and and that's what they go to these big factories, and there's 400 people, and they're they're annoyed, saying we haven't been paid in three four months, and the manager literally says to them, "Yeah, guys, it's because the money's gone to Crimea. We don't have the money. They took it to go pay pensions in Crimea or go pay, uh, you know." give some social benefits in the Donbass. That's, it gives an answer to the people, but that's not, <laughs> the people can't be hearing that month after month after month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, wow. I, now, so that, that kind of, the, this, this actually kind of leads into the, the, the last two points that I wanted to touch on. One is the sort of the, the regional implications of mm-hmm. Russia and the other oil producers in that region uh, their economy is going down. This is the we, we both went to to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, so we, we've done the macroeconomic game where it's like oil prices go down, the currency does this, you know, such and such goes up, you know, trade, you know, this kind of yeah. thing where where it's like uh, the 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 fun daisy chain of this causes this to happen, causes this to happen, causes this to happen. Right. Um, it really affects not just the oil producers but this entire region because. You know, the oil producers themselves, when when the price of oil goes down, their economies tank, but their current their currencies also depreciate, and that affects their trade relations with all of their neighbors and their you know their purchasing power because they their economies have have declined. And so, right. even if you're not an oil producer in this region, you're kind of stuck with this this economic either a recession or or just growth at a lower rate than than was happening before because no one's going to buy your products they're now uncompetitive and no one has any money to buy them in your major trading trading partners your major export markets right yeah exactly i mean i'll i'll spare the listeners uh the economics lesson but yeah there's a whole chain of events so i mean the the collapse of the ruble then makes the ruble far more competitive than your experts exports when you know you're trying to export whatever you compete in various minerals predictably or maybe some consumer goods well now your kazakh tenge or uh you know uzbek som or whichever currency you want to name in the region now becomes unattractive uncompetitive within the region and globally i mean they're not really exporting globally too much these countries but but nonetheless so then these countries all had all there's so much currency pressure naturally so then all these these um currencies then depreciated drastically um and then the other, so, and, and related to that um, is the fact that even the countries that aren't the energy experts, so the Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Armenia, they're indirectly almost like energy exporters because they rely so heavily in two primary ways on the Russian market. The, I mean, it's by far the largest economy in the region. So, and depending on its um, 
you know, for just to export to this huge market. Now with the ruble collapse and the recession combined, both of them, it makes their goods more expensive and less attractive, generally speaking, just because there's just less demand overall. So that, that hurts their economy. They're, they're yeah. not exporting to Russia as much anymore. And then, yeah, this, this is one of the things about Russia. I mean, this is one of the things that defines a great or regional power is, is it's kind of like being a planet in a solar system. It, mm-hmm. You're defined by being you're a planet if you're able to clear your own orbit. And so like if every, if every single one of your neighbors, if you are their primary trading partner, then that's usually a sign that that you're an important country, and this is this is what Russia. I mean, all of these, most of Russia's neighbors trade primarily with Russia, or or have huge economic ties with Russia that go back a long time, and are often economically dependent. Especially some of the stands and the Caucasus, yeah. you've got large. I mean, it's people will will go to Russia, work, and send back remittances. It's almost like the relationship of Mexico to the United States, except mm-hmm. like ten countries. Yeah, and and that's that's the point. The remittances issue. I'll, I'll get into that. Uh here um in a second but these uh these countries so they're they're importing all of this currency weakness from russia right and then you know in the meantime before their currencies aligned they were trying to sell still back into russia into this recessionary market but getting into the old trade linkages linkages as you just mentioned that's what the soviet union did intentionally was to set up um basically industries and complementary industries that you trade in component parts um you know, all across the Soviet Union to ensure this economic integration in addition to the political union, right? And these things still exist to this day. I mean, that you still have Belarus, um, you know, refining oil, uh, making manufactured parts to be sending back into Russia. And so you have these old linkages that still have survived for 30, 40 years for these countries. So it makes them still continue to be dependent so overwhelmingly on, on the Russian market. Um, so that's why in a major downturn like this, it really hurts them. The biggest point, though, and you just mentioned, was the remittances. Um, and that's where um, the stands in particular are struggling the most. So they, they sent so many um, you know, migrant workers into, into Russia, and they rely on the money coming back. Um, and Tajikistan, for example, 50% of GDP is off of remittances. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, it depends on the year, between 30 and 40% of GDP is based off of remittances uh, coming from Russia primarily. Um, Uzbekistan, it's less, it's, if I remember, it's around 20%, but in absolute terms, it's a much larger economy than Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. Um, in absolute terms, it, it's by far the largest uh, importer of, of remittances. Um, and uh, it's same thing, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia. So all these countries are seeing a drastic drop. And, and this is where the political implications become scary, because now you're having not only the money being cut in half. So last year, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan... Uh, saw the remittances cut in half. Armenia as well cut in half. Uh, Uzbekistan, the, the drop is a little bit uh, a little bit less. But um, not so. You have that economic impact, but then the political issue is you have less money coming back, right? So you have worsened consumer purchasing power. Um, but then you also have the political implications. So less money coming back, but also now these returning young unemployed guys. 22-year-old guy, maybe he's got a wife and a kid at home, and he has no income, and he's unemployed now, and he's sitting in Bishkek or in Dushanbe or whatever city you want to name, and he's not alone. He's coming back with thousands of other people, and this is just a recipe for for social unrest, and this is exactly what happened, um, and, and in a far less worse crisis in 2008, 2009, and then in 2010, 
You had major protests in Kyrgyzstan from all these returning migrant workers, and you had the coup and, and the, the change in power in the government. And so that's the concern because the, the pressure is not going to let up anytime soon. I mean, oil prices aren't going to recover. The Russian economy is going to be in a recession again this year. Next year, they might grow by 1%, 2%-ish. Uh, by the time, it'll be probably 2018 or 2019 most likely that they get back to, in absolute terms, the level of GDP they're at before the oil prices dropped. So they basically lost five years of their economy. Um, and we still have two to three years to go through this period. And so all of these countries that we're talking about here in the stands and, and in caucuses, um, this is, this problem's not going away for the next several years. So the political implications, there's just going to be more and more pressure uh, on these governments there. And it's it, it we'll see how it all develops, but it uh, they don't have a lot of... Uh, very high state capacity, uh, depending upon the country, uh, for a lot of them. So it becomes increasingly dangerous uh, with each passing day. I, I want to conclude by uh, we uh, on our last your, 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 the last time you came on the podcast, we talked about what was going on in Ukraine, and since then, quite a lot has happened in Ukraine. So I just wanted uh-huh. to touch on this briefly before we before we we wrap up. Uh, you have sure. the uh, the the former. Uh, Economy Minister uh, Ivaris Abramovicius resigning in protest and sending a scathing letter on the way out the door blaming blaming dark and evil forces trying to ruin Ukraine with corruption. Uh, this guy was really popular uh, with uh, in, in a lot of Western circles with the IMF, who's now starting to make noise about the uh, the seventeen point five billion dollar bailout being at risk. Um, his his letter, I mean, it's it's really it's worth it's worth reading. It's, <laughs> it's something. It, he said that people close to the president had tried to force him to to yep. hire corrupt officials in the ministry. Uh, it, it's it's pretty damning stuff. And then you had the uh, the prime minister uh, uh, Yatsenyuk uh, surviving a no confidence vote and surviving a, 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 an opposition. MP attempting to drag him bodily off of the floor while he was giving an address, <laughs> um, right. which he handled with with stoicism, much more than I would have handled it with. But but all the same, it's a crazy time in Ukraine. What is going on? Yeah, I mean, where to start? Where to end? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll try to keep this under an hour and a half. But um, yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that wasn't the only. I mean, Saakashvili got in a fight. He's the mayor of Odessa, the former Georgian president, uh, got in a fight with the well-known to be corrupt interior minister. Uh, they threw water, or he, yeah, he threw water at a public meeting at Saakashvili's face. Um, yeah, Yatsenyuk has been, been attacked actually a couple of times <laughs> uh, while in the Rada, but, but fight, throw, you know, kicking and throwing punches in the Rada is, is uh, it's a Ukrainian pastime. So th- this is actually isn't too startling if you yeah. follow the The best Ukrainian part was the, the, the guy, the guy came up and presented him with a bouquet of flowers just yeah. as an excuse <laughs> to get to the podium and then attempted to drag the, the prime minister yep. of the country away. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 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 brilliant stuff. I mean, it, it's funny looking from afar, but it's somewhat tragic when you consider actually what's going on. But um, yeah, I mean, very, very, very briefly, um, it, I, I, I'm still cautiously optimistic about Ukraine, but they're in a very, it, it's tough. Um, and it's, they're not making the necessary advances against corruption that they, they had to. Um, and this was the year. It had to start basically January, February now. And this this is the problem that it's not moving. And then the central issue is that um, 
the prime minister all along, it's been questionable at best, but most people, I mean, Ukrainians themselves have no trust in him. And then most outside observers gave him the benefit of the doubt that he's in a tough spot macroeconomically they're in, you know, they, they had to go through a lot. Um, and he's trying to hold together this coalition. Okay, fine. But at the end of the day, he, it's clear he's been contributing himself to, um, to the lack of uh, progress in the, in the corruption fight. Um, but now it seems like the president, so I, I, I won't go into the details of the voting, but long story short, president Poroshenko, prime minister Yatsenyuk, uh, in bed with oligarchs in back deals, uh, ensured that Yatsenyuk would survive the no confidence vote. It was a dead deal. He was going to get voted out 15 minutes prior to the vote. They had their little meeting and then conveniently about, I think it was 40 some uh, MPs, uh, members of parliament just walked out and abstained from voting. And all of those MPs were basically controlled by various oligarchs uh, and known to be publicly uh, controlled by various oligarchs in the country. And many of them were from both Yatsenyuk's party as well as the president's party. So everybody's implicated. It's clear. Um, and so for the, this is just the latest episode. Um, but for the issues, the resignations you mentioned, they hadn't moved it. You know, in the corruption fight, it was clear that the prosecutor general, who fortunately was actually fired, uh, though that's even unclear how it was done and if he was actually truly formally, like officially fired or not. <laughs> so that's another question mark. Um, but nonetheless, all of these issues going on, um, it, it, we'll see. We'll see how it develops. There very well could be snap elections. Um, there's been rumors that's based on Western pressure um, that Yatsenyuk will be pushed out now and that the new prime minister could very well be the current uh, finance minister, Natalia Yuresko, a dual U.S.-Ukrainian citizen who's done an excellent job uh absolute 100% legitimate, you know, fighter and, and uh, you know, a member of the fight uh, against corruption. Um, her uh, or a um, the former central banker uh, uh, and vice president of Poland, who is a, re- a renowned Western liberal and would come in 100% clean and everything. So, um, so that's potentially positive. We'll see. Um, but it, it's, they're not getting any more money. They, they need the money desperately so it, it's it is very well possible that enough western pressure the lack of the imf funding um might steer them but you know in the right direction but this is this is the 11th hour they can't really go much farther or else you you are going to see another maidan like protests in the street collapse of the government no more western funding and then the country sort of spirals downwards for the next several months um so we'll see but uh again i, I gave you the negative version but I'm still fairly optimistic that with enough Western pressure, they can sort of move their way out. Hopefully, in in our in our pre-talk, you said that the situation was so fluid that by the time we actually go to uh, by the time I actually publish this podcast, because it usually takes me a couple of days to edit them after after recording mm-hmm. them, uh, everything might be different. Uh, so <laughs> if if that happens, um, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, you will. Um, uh, hopefully, want to come back on the show and tell us what the heck is going on, because <laughs> yeah, it's, and I'm, it's gotten I'm quite sure interesting. It, yes, and I'm sure when I come back on the show, it'll be in flux to an extent as well, and we'll have to <laughs> we'll probably have to be planning for the next one too. It's gonna be it's gonna be a very uh, bumpy uh, and volatile year for for Ukraine, no doubt. Mark McNamee, thank you so much once again for coming on the podcast. 
Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Joe. I'm uh, always happy to talk about these issues, of course. You can find the podcast online by uh, searching for Ambassadors at Large in the iTunes store. You can subscribe for free, and uh, you can also find it online on my website at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I dot com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode real soon. Bye-bye.